0: If you please open your Bibles, our sermon text for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 34, which is found on page 958 of your Pew Bible. And you also may want to keep your finger in the Old Testament reading that Nathan read for us from, from Genesis chapter 8, 20 through chapter 9, verse 17. And that's found on page 6 if you're using the Pew Bible. And then at the end we'll be looking at our gospel reading as well, which is Matthew twenty two, one through fourteen. And that's on page eight twenty-seven. So if you want to have those passages ready. And today we're looking at a passage that, that'll really sound very familiar to you if you've been here for a while, because it's one of our institutions for the Lord's Supper. We will read this every every week. We do the Lord's Supper, either in the morning or in the evening sermon. And this is this is really the longest of the institutions. Of the Lord's Supper. And this is the one that has the explicit warning with it the warning about eating the supper in an unworthy manner. And it it gives us the uh, instructions for us to examine ourselves to make sure we are not eating the supper, partaking in an unworthy manner. And although we've heard this institution countless times, and although we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, I think it's safe to say that few Christians really, truly understand the Lord's Supper, truly understand why we celebrate every week, the significance of it, what a tremendous blessing it is, how it is a, a means of grace in our life. And my purpose in this sermon is to hopefully have us gain a greater appreciation of the Lord's Supper. And as Nathan mentioned, providentially, it is this week that we're actually doing. I didn't, I didn't, try to set it up this way. This is the way it worked out that we're actually going to be able to immediately apply what we hear in the sermon as we celebrate the sacrament. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your sacrament. Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will give us a new appreciation for the sacrament as we hear hear these words. Father, I pray for your spirit to anoint my words. I know without your Spirit's anointing, I will make no sense. Without your Spirit's anointing, we cannot hear, we cannot, be, uh, we cannot benefit, we cannot be blessed by your word. So, Father, we pray that your Spirit will work today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we look at this 1 Corinthians passage, I want to briefly look at our Old Testament passage. So if you would turn to Genesis 8, uh, verses 20 through nine seventeen, 17, and uh, that's on page 6. And much of the reason I think we have difficulty grasping the significance of the Lord's Supper is because we really don't think the way they, they thought in the Bible. We're not familiar with the idea of covenant. And covenant is God's way of primarily interacting with his people that we see in Scripture. And to gain an understanding of this and the importance of covenant and the covenant sign, I think we want to briefly look at one of the earliest um, covenants in Scripture, the Noahic Covenant. And the Noahic Covenant is made with the creation after the flood, and it's a promise that God would never again destroy the creation, but rather he would redeem it. And we're going to go through this, this section quickly, just as a way of a background. But notice in, in Genesis 8:20, Noah built an altar, and he offered a sacrifice to the Lord. It says a sacrifice of some of every clean animal and every clean bird. And we're we're told in the book of Hebrews that these Old Testament sacrifices, they had no merit in and of themselves, but rather they served as a pointer, a pointer to the sacrifice, to the only sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. See, Christ alone is the one who has the merit. And because of Christ's sacrifice, which is symbolized by Noah's sacrifice here, God will never again curse the ground. God will never again destroy the earth, even though man is still sinful. Man is still really just as evil as he was prior to the flood, which caused the flood. But because of Christ's sacrifice, God's wrath against the sin of his people has been satisfied. So destruction does not occur. And as the scripture tells us, the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease, only because of Christ. In Genesis chapter 9, God blesses and commissions Noah's family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that should sound familiar, because Noah is given the same charge that was given to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But there's an important difference. Noah is given a promise. He is given a covenant that Adam and Eve were not given. and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So God promises that he will not destroy the world because of man's sin. And the sign of this promise is the rainbow. And from that day forward, Even through today, every person who sees a rainbow in the sky sees this reminder, reminder of this promise that God has made. It's a real, it's a visible sign, a seal. It's a pledge of God's promise never again to destroy the world. And this promise with its corresponding sign of the rainbow provides this tremendous comfort and assurance to God's people throughout the ages, even to us today. So because of this promise, because of this covenant, we're not panicked when we hear all the doomsday predictions in the world. We're not worried that an asteroid is going to hit the world and and, and destroy all the life. We're not worried about a, a, a nuclear holocaust wiping out humanity. We're not terrified that climate change will make our planet uninhabitable. We know that God will not allow his creation to be destroyed. Now, this doesn't absolve us from the the responsibility we have to be faithful stewards of God's creation. It doesn't give us permission to abuse the creation. But we're not terrified. We're not terrified by these scenarios. We don't act like those who do not know God, who do not know his covenant. And just as the rainbow is the sign and seal of God's promise of the Noahic covenant, the New Testament sacraments, sacraments of baptism, and the Lord's Supper, they are signs and seals of God's promises in the new Covenant. And next month in June, Nathan, Lord willing, will be preaching about baptism on the same day that we're going to baptize Elias. And today we're going to be looking at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to break this passage into, really into two parts. First, we're going to, to look at the signs and seals, the pledges in the Lord's Supper. And second, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the warnings, the negative pledges that are associated with the Lord's Supper. And the first thing I want us to notice when we look here is that Paul makes it clear that this sacrament originates with the Lord. It doesn't originate with him. Paul is not giving his own command. He says in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So why is this important? Because the Lord's Supper provides for us something that we desperately want. Something that we desperately need. And that is a a tangible, visible sign of the gospel. A tangible, visible sign that we personally belong to Christ. A, A tangible, visible sign that these promises belong to us. Something that we can point to. Something that we can cling to. Especially when our faith is weak. When our assurance is failing. Now, sadly, instead of the sacrament, the very thing that God has given us for this purpose of strengthening our faith, we have made for ourselves other non-biblical traditions, invented by the church, found nowhere in Scripture. And we look to these when our faith is weak in our assurance. So what are some of these traditions that we look to? Well, our Roman Catholic friends and our Orthodox friends, they look to icons, they look to statues. They look to saints. But we have the same, too. We have our own idols that we have made in the Protestant tradition. We look to altar calls and sinners' prayers and, and emotional experiences or even signing a Bible. I had a, a Bible here, the, the, the Gideon's Bible. Here it is. The, the Gideon's Bible that they have. On the, on the last page, if you look at your Gideon's Bible, it has a great plan of salvation. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then it has my decision to receive Christ as my Savior. And you sign it and you put your date. And some people will come and look to this. I've got this. I've signed it. This is my assurance. Uh, My sign is in the Bible. But we have something much better. We have such much better than altar calls and signing Bibles and all these man-made traditions as, as helpful as they could be. We have this sacrament we have the Lord's Supper given by the Lord himself for this very purpose of strengthening our faith, giving us a a real, tangible, visible sign of the gospel. And what Paul is about to tell them, he says, was instituted by the Lord himself. So Paul continues, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. So the first element of the Lord's Supper is bread. We see it right there, that little matzah cracker, cracker there. And specifically, it is the breaking of the bread. So when, in a few moments when we do the sacrament, you'll see me breaking the bread. And this bread, this, is, this is, represents, as Jesus said, his own body, his body being broken on the cross. And it's a sign. It's a sign of Christ's broken body that is broken under God's wrath. Wrath not for anything that Christ did, but rather God's wrath against the sin of his people, which was punished on the cross. And again, in just a few minutes, when we're celebrating the sacrament and we see the breaking of the bread, it is a picture for us. It is a picture of the cross, a picture of Christ's body being broken on the cross, broken because of sin. But it's not a, a generic picture. It's not an abstract illustration of the atonement. Jesus not only says that this broken bread is his body, but he also tells us a sp- specific reason why it is broken. The reason it is for you. It is for God's elect. This is my body which is broken for you. God's elect. And this is very important. The sacrifice is not generic. It is not just offered up for some nameless faceless humanity, it is offered for you, Christian. It is offered for you. It is offered up for believers. And to make this real clear, if you are a believer, if you are born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of Christ's body being broken for you personally, for me personally. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is our proof. This is our confirmation. This is our reminder of the cosmic sacrifice, this real event that happened in real time, in real place, where every sin of every believer was completely and finally atoned for and washed away. And then Jesus specifically tells us to do this in remembrance of him. This is a command, a command for us to repeat this, not just once, not just occasionally but it is a command to repeat often. We see that in verse 25 and 26, often. And Jesus doesn't tell us how, what does that mean? Does that mean do it once a, a, a year, once a quarter, once a month, once a week, once every day? We are not told. It just simply says often. Now you listened to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson, and he says, it says often. What does often mean? And he says often means often. That's all it is. He said often. And was this just for the disciples? Was this just for those men with Jesus in the upper room on the night of the Last Supper? Was it simply for the first century church? No. This command is for the entire church, for the entire church age. Verse 26 says we are to celebrate the sacrament in remembrance of him until he comes, meaning until the second coming. This is a perpetual command for the entirety of the church age. But God is, is so gracious to us. Not only does he give us This sign of the breaking of the bread is a sign and seal of his broken body. He also gives us another element of a sign and seal. And we see this in verse 25. He says, in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it, in remembrance of me. Not only, we we have not only the bread, we we also have the wine that signifies the, the blood of the new covenant, the covenant which is in Christ's blood. So when we see the wine, even that little tiny cup there, we see the blood of the new covenant. We remember the blood that was poured out on the cross. And when we drink it, when we remember him, we remember the new covenant. And this is a seal of the new covenant that was promised in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So in just a few moments, when we celebrate the sacrament, when we see the wine, it is the seal of this promise. This promise that God puts his law in our hearts. He writes in our hearts. He puts it within us. It's a, it's a promise that we are a new creation. We know him. This is the picture we see. This is the guarantee we see in this Lord's Supper. It's a pledge of the reality. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, this sacrament that we are about to celebrate is a proclamation. It's a proclamation of the Lord's death. His sacrificial, sin-atoning death. It is a proclamation of the gospel. And as God's people Our participation in the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel to one another. And not only do we observe the signs and and seals, not only do we proclaim the gospel, we also receive the gospel. See, we're active participants in the sacraments. We're not passive. The gospel that is proclaimed also requires a response. And we respond during the sacrament. And our response is, to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. And this response is signified in the sacrament when we take the bread, when we drink the wine, when we eat and when we drink. The bread and the wine, they come into our bodies. This becomes part of our body. And this symbolizes, this is a sign and seal, this is a physical picture of the spiritual reality that we have union with Christ. And again, just a few moments, as we celebrate the sacrament, our receiving the elements is a confirmation of our faith. That is what we're seeing. It's a confirmation that we have a faith, that we believe, that we belong to Christ, that we have received him by faith. We're united to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a confirmation that we belong to him. See, we don't need to use... Unbiblical means such as altar calls to rededicate our lives to Christ. Christ himself has given us this means to rededicate our lives every week as we confirm and and it confirms and strengthens our faith. And it gives us the supernatural assurance of our union with Christ. See, because the sacrament comes from Christ and is not an invention of man, it has God's power. The Lord's Supper is not simply a memorial. It is not just done to remember Christ's atoning death. It is much more than that. It is a means of grace. And in the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ is spiritually present in the elements through the Holy Spirit. There is a real presence when that is consecrated. There's a real presence of Christ in there. And that's not physical. The bread and wine still remain bread and wine. We reject the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation that says that the consecration of the elements actually physically become our change into the body and blood of Christ. And then the Mass is a bloodless re-sacrifice of Christ. We reject this idea. Christ was sacrificed once and all for all on the cross. And he said, it is finished. The elements remain physically unchanged. But nonetheless, Christ is, is truly and spiritually present in the Lord's Supper. And this presence gives the sacrament the supernatural power to accomplish the purpose, to strengthen our faith, and to be a means of grace for us. Grace that enables us to really to persevere in this fallen world. And I don't know about you, but I could certainly use that. I know this world is difficult, and it beats up on us. And we need this grace to help us to persevere, to boldly, to confidently, to joyfully live the Christian life, all to the glory of God. So this is, the, this is a vertical dimension of the Lord's Supper. This is the, the spiritual interaction between individual Christians and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But there's also a horizontal dimension to the Lord's Supper, and that is the fellowship. This fellowship is, is not just with the Lord, but it's a fellowship meal that we celebrate with one another. The Lord's Supper not only strengthens our faith and strengthens our, our relationship and our love for God, it also strengthens our relationship with one another, our love for one another. And the Lord's Supper builds bonds of love within the church. It gives us the grace that enables us to obey Christ's command that we are to love one another. And this is the reason for Paul's sharp rebuke in the preceding verses that we looked at last week. The, the, the Corinthians had completely missed this point. And they, they were still filled with worldly divisions even during the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is, is a sign and a seal that displays for us the spiritual reality, and, and it conveys God's promise to fully complete and accomplish all that's signified. And just as the rainbow display the reality of God's promise never to, again to destroy the world because of man's sin, the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of us for the gospel and the promises that we see in the gospel. And the Lord's Supper is an amazing gift to the church. And sadly, it's a a gift that's far too often uh, neglected and far too few of us fully enjoy and, and fully appreciate it. But there's also a warning here. There's a warning associated with the Lord's Supper, a warning that we dare not overlook. So take a look at verse 27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And also in verses 29 and 30, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So this is, this is a serious warning, a serious warning that comes with serious consequences. Just as there are real benefits Real grace conferred by the Lord's Supper when partaken in the right manner. There's also real danger, real judgment associated with taking the supper in a wrong way. And Paul mentions this, this judgment of weakness and illness and even death associated with the wrong use of the Lord's Supper. So what is this wrong use? What does it mean to eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner? Well, to understand this, I think it will help, be helpful for us to briefly look at our Gospel reading in Matthew 22, uh, verses 1 through 14. And this is the parable of the wedding feast. So if you're using the pew Bible, let's find on page 827. So if you want to turn there for a moment. And I want to look specifically at the end of this parable, where we see this, this confusing incident with this man who, who didn't have the wedding garment. So Jesus says about this parable, this parable uh, is, is really, it's is an analogy that he's giving of, of the kingdom of heaven. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a king giving a wedding feast for his son. And then we notice that the invitation goes out to all. This invitation goes out to all the people uh, in, you know, on the streets, the worthy and, and the unworthy. And this, this invitation is analogous to the, the gospel invitation. Goes out to all, indiscriminately goes out. And verse tel- 10 tells us that the king's servants went out and they gathered all they found. And they brought him into the feast. Now let's take a look at 11 through 14 of this parable in in Matthew 22. It says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And I think it's this wedding garment, or lack thereof, that's the key to understanding Paul's warning about taking the sacraments in an unworthy manner. So what is it about this wedding garment that's so significant? Well, remember, again, this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. In fact, verses 13 and 14, I think he's no longer talking about the parable, but rather about the reality that is described in the parable. See, being cast into the outer darkness with his weeping and gnashing of teeth, this is not speaking about a a wedding guest being thrown out of of the celebration because he's inappropriately dressed. No, it's much more than that. This is a description of damnation. This is a description of hell, this poor soul being cast into hell. So what does it mean to be wearing the wedding garment? Well, wearing the wedding garment is what is necessary for us to come into the presence of the king. Wearing the wedding garment means being clothed, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. Being clothed in Christ is the only way. The only way that anyone can stand in the king, the king, the Lord, the the God of the universe's presence. And if we dare, if we dare to come into his holy presence in our own righteousness, trusting in our, our own appearance, coming without being covered by Christ, we are in big trouble. We will face immediate judgment. We will be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think this is exactly what Paul means by participating in an unworthy manner. It's the same as coming into the Lord's presence, not having the wedding garment. It's the same as not being clothed in Christ's righteousness. It means not being a believer. See, all the benefits and and the blessings and the grace associated with, with the Lord's Supper, they are only for the believer. The sacrament is a sign and seal only for the believer, the person who is in Christ, the person who is in his covenant community. So a person who rejects the gospel, who rejects Christ's atoning work on the cross, a person who doesn't think he needs a savior, doesn't think he needs a wedding coat. He's perfectly fine the way he is. He's he's trusting in himself, in his own good works to please God. Or maybe a person who doesn't even believe God exists. A person who thinks this is all nonsense. See, this person may take the sacrament, not because he sees it as a sign and seal of anything, but simply he sees it as as an empty ritual. This person is profaning the sacrament. He is taking the sacrament in an unworthy manner. This person will not receive grace, but rather judgment. See, instead of strengthening his faith, this person will actually be hardening his heart by taking the sacrament. Now, God is gracious, because there are many people, myself included, who have taken the Lord's Supper before we were believers, and God has mercifully not hardened our hearts. But He has given us grace, and in His time, He has given us the saving faith. But this is not something to be presumed upon. The Lord's Supper is for believers only, it is for those who are in regular fellowship in Bible believing churches. And this is why, as a minister, I fence the table. It is to protect the unbeliever from bringing this judgment upon himself and taking upon it and profaning the sacrament. And this is why it's important. It's important for us as we come to the Lord's Supper in just a few moments for us to examine ourselves. As Paul says in in verse 28, we are are to recognize Christ's sacrifice. We are to, to recognize our need for the sacrifice. And this is what Paul means in verse 31 where he says, but if we are judged ourselves truly... But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. See, if we judge, or another word is discern. If we discern truly, which means recognizing our need for Christ, not relying upon ourselves, but falling upon Christ, falling upon his mercy alone, when we do this, then we are covered by Christ's righteousness. Then we will not be judged because we are in Christ. But if we think we have no need for Christ if we think we're good enough on our own, then we will be judged and we will be found wanting. Paul continues in verse 32, he says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, we are disciplined as God's beloved children, not for the purpose of of condemnation, but for our sanctification, for our growth in grace so that we may better glorify God, we may better enjoy him. So, brothers and sisters, as we now come to the Lord's Supper, let us now examine ourselves. Let us prepare ourselves for the blessing of the sacrament that it it conveys, this blessing that we are about to receive. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the sacrament. And we pray, Father, that you will prepare our hearts as we examine ourselves, as we know that we are not worthy in and of ourselves, but we know that this is a means of grace. And really the only... The only way to show that we're worthy is to know our need, to know that we are unworthy, to know that we need Christ and to trust in him. So, Father, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.